Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm John Marzalek, a host for the podcast Queer Voices of the South, a LGBTQ plus studies channel podcast of the New Books Network. I'm joined today by my co-host, Morris Ardoin. Hello, Morris. Hey, John. Good to be here. So happy that we're doing this together today. Today, we're going to be talking to Stephen Capsudo about his book, Alternate Channels, Queer Images on 20th Century TV. Alternate Channels explores the fight for lesbian and gay visibility on 20th century American television, as gay activists faced off with powerful, often vicious, traditional values crusaders, with TV executives caught in the crossfire. It documents countless programs, characters, and political skirmishes, examining lesbian and gay portrayals and the few pioneering depictions of bisexual and trans people. The first edition was a semifinalist for what is now the Stonewall Book Award and has been widely used in universities. This revised edition, fact-checked from scratch, reinstates material that the original publisher cut and adds about 100 photos of TV shows from the early days to the year 2000. Stephen Capsudo built this account of events from archival materials, a thousand broadcasting recordings, and his interviews with showrunners, network, and studio executives, and early activists. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Hi, John. Hi, Morris. Hey, how so, you doing? I wondered if you could begin by telling our listeners about yourself. Well, sure. I grew up in uh, the Philadelphia area in southern New Jersey in the 1970s. Um, and I was very lucky because when, when I started to figure out that I was gay when I was about 11 years old, um, I had a, an openly gay great uncle who had been born, I think, in 1915 and who had been relatively out to the family since the 1940s. So by the time I was figuring myself out in the 70s, um, the family at least had some points of reference for what gay was, which was very helpful. And wow. um, at the time, you know, I was let's see, I was 11. So it was like 1975 when I figured out I was gay. And I was very lucky that at that point, the gay liberation movement had been lobbying the television industry very hard to back away from the horrible stereotypes of, you know, gay killers and child molesters and so on. Mm -hmm. And the images that I was seeing in the culture were, were relatively reassuring, you know, because, because at the time being out wasn't really safe, which meant we were not only mostly invisible to the public, we were mostly invisible to each other. And so as a kid, all I had was points of reference in the media. Mm -hmm. And I was very lucky that I was seeing people, you know, gay people interviewed on talk shows and some gay characters on TV shows and saw, okay, yeah, these people, they have lives, they have friends, they, you know, their family talks to them. And that was, that gave me some point of reference for, you know, a future in which I could be out, which was kind of cool. That's a great story. Yeah. How did you come to write this book? So when I was in grad school in the late 80s, I was volunteering with an organization that was called Gay and Lesbian Peer Counseling of Philadelphia. And we were getting lots of calls from, uh, suicidal gay and lesbian teenagers. Again, it was a very different era. Um, by the by the late 80s, those gains that had happened in the media had really eroded and the images that were out there were kind of terrifying. I would hate to have been, you know, me coming out at age 11, 12 in the media environment of the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the height of the AIDS epidemic. There was a lot of really anti-queer backlash in general. And anyway, um, what our clinical supervisor told us is that if the caller is calm enough, ask this young person, what do they think, you know, gay people's lives, bi people's lives, lesbian women's lives are like, you know, what is it that they imagine that they are quote unquote doomed to if they, if they let themselves be, be out, you know, and 
the answer I always got when I was talking to these young callers was I only know what I see on television, um, which kind of intrigued me at that point. I wasn't watching television. I was in grad school. I was barely sleeping. I didn't have time for television. So I was curious what the, the media images were, were about at that time. And then I looked through the logbook and I found that all of the other counselors were getting that same exact answer from, you know, teenage callers who were contemplating suicide. Yeah, I loved reading that story in the book. And so I was really excited about you sharing that story with our listeners here. It was an intriguing time also because it was, it was, you know, there's that point in the I guess about seven, eight years later, where you start to have the merger between the two movements, the LGB rights movement and the trans rights movement. And our organization was really just a little ahead of the, the, the curve on that, in that we had been starting to get calls from trans people and the people running this group that had been founded you know, as a gay and lesbian counseling service decided they needed to recruit some trans volunteers and to, to get the volunteers, the rest of us trained around trans issues. And so the, the first openly trans person I knew at age, whatever I was, 21, 22, um, was a then unknown Kate Bornstein, who was one of our volunteers and who was a really interesting, you know, first trans person to know who later became quite well known as a a writer and lecturer and performer around trans issues and gender issues. And that leads into Morris's question, I believe. Morris? Yes, thank you, John. Um, you, you, you brushed on this in, in telling us about how you came to write the book. In the early, uh, there's a chapter right in the beginning of the book about, the, uh, it's called The Negotiators, that in the early 70s is when things started to, to gel with activists um, in all kinds of places. Um, and one of the places was, was uh, in popular media. And I just coincidentally interviewed the writer for a, a book on Morris Kite, who was very active in the movement. And oh, you mentioned Morris yeah. Kite in the book. And so um, I, I, I'd love for our listeners to know how that this wasn't organic. There was a lot of work that had to go on. And if you could talk about that a, a little bit. Um, again, you do get it. To, you get to it uh, in the book. And it was, as I was reading it, I was like, wow, this is this is uh, it's surprising, but not surprising that it took all this. Uh, these efforts and these groups to come together to start making the slightest bit of change. So um, if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, the movement was really, really small at the beginning. I mean, I, I was friends with uh, the late Barbara Giddings and her partner, Kay LaHusen, who's still alive, uh, who were involved in some of the early homophile groups. Uh, they were vitally involved with the Daughters of Belitis uh, in the 50s and early 60s and had attended Mattachine events and so on. And uh, what Barbara told me, she said at the beginning, there were you know, nationwide maybe 200 people in the whole movement, and they all knew each other <laughs> because yeah. you had to, right? Um, and it was a lot of work because there weren't a lot of people doing it, partly because the danger of being visible as gay uh, was tremendous, right? You were considered a criminal everywhere in the U.S. until... 1963, and in most of the U.S. until the 80s, uh, and then still in, what, 14 or 15 states into the 2000s. So, uh, and and the beliefs that we were emotionally unstable and untrustworthy and apt to commit violent crimes and, and so on was used to justify job discrimination. The, the largest employer in the country, which was the federal government, had a strict ban on open homosexuals, you know, because they were thought to be uh, subject to blackmail by by Moscow and all that. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it, it was a dangerous time to be out. And that starts to change right around just before the Stonewall era, you start to have the gay liberation groups forming. Uh, in Here in New York, it was the, the Gay Liberation Front, which was before Stonewall, and then Gay Activist Alliance shortly after Stonewall. And uh, uh, Trans, a trans asterisk group that was called Star in the early 70s. And so you start to have these people who are willing to, to march openly and, and in significant numbers. Uh, and where you see that transition is, I used to be the, the archivist at the LGBTQ archives in Philadelphia, and we have this wonderful photo collection of some of the early, uh, the, the 1965 to 69 pickets at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Every year on July 4th, this group of homophile activists would 
go in corporate dress with picket signs to remind people that American freedom doesn't apply to everybody yet. And you see this real shift between, you know, the, the 1965 to 68 ones pretty much all look the same. And then you get to the 69 one and there are so many people participating. Uh, This is, you know, just weeks after Stonewall, I think whole buses came down from New York and you have people uh, starting to look less corporate, people holding hands, which was, you know, a violation of the homophile rules for, for picketing. And it's this real just sudden shift in 69, 70. And anyway, that movement that grows out of the just pre and just post Stonewall era starts to lobby the networks. Part of the reason they're doing that is because that's the moment where the movement becomes visible and our activists are being interviewed in larger numbers when entertainment television decides, aha, this is like the the hot new issue that we can put in our scripts in very tame or abusive ways to show how trendy and cutting edge our new shows are to distinguish them from the old shows that are being shown in reruns, right? So you have this moment in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, the portrayals are actually not bad. They're very cautious. They're they're handled gingerly. But once the topic becomes a little more familiar, 73 to 75, let's say, you have this period where pretty much every, if not every, uh, LGBT character, and I'm using the T very broadly at this point because... At that point, it was sort of more coded. You would have somebody who's gender nonconforming, and you weren't quite sure, are they trans? Are they a cross-dresser? Are they, you're not sure, right? But any kind of a queer character on a drama series at that time is a guest character who's a killer, a child molester, a uh, terrorist, or in one case, there was a medical drama series, very popular series called Marcus Welby, MD, which Uh did two shows. One had homosexuality as the disease of the week. Well, the patient had several problems. He had he was an alcoholic, he was diabetic, uh, and he was homosexual. And the, the last one is what the doctor was really worried about. That was the dire problem. And then the next year they did uh, an episode about a male high school teacher who rapes teenage boys. So that was that, this was the context, and this is the moment when we're just starting to fight for our rights for decriminalization, for non-discrimination laws, and so on. And that's the image that the public sees. And again, most people, even in the mid-90s, if you look at the like the Gallup poll surveys and the other, the other surveys, uh, most people thought they didn't know any LGBT people, hmm. right? And so the media images mattered more. This is pre, pre the World Wide Web, pre-online forums that you know large numbers of people know about. And so what's on television really mattered. Yeah. Um, thank this you. This really um, leads so well into the. Yeah, go ahead. John. I'm sorry, I, Morris, I, you go ahead. I, I just want to say you, you're touching on so many things. I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, older than you just by a couple of years, um, Stephen. And um, I absolutely remember the Marcus Welby episode. And as a, 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 a preteen, I was, you know, at first you have to, you have two sides about it as a as a viewer, as a gay viewer, is that at least something is there, and then you're scared to death yeah. of it, and you look at it like, oh my goodness, um, and so you don't say a peep, of course, but I, there is a piece of me that was grateful that at least there was something there because I didn't feel so alone, hmm. and I remember that distinctly. And the character isn't. Yeah. The character isn't mean, he's not evil, he's not destroying other people's lives, but he's being told, you know, you have to get this under control so that you'll be worthy of your son's love, you know. So right. there's the Vito Russo, who wrote, who wrote the, the Celluloid Closet, which is a similar book about yeah. movies, which yeah. is sort of what I patterned this on. Vito used to say that the history of gay and lesbian characters in the media is the history of saying, well, at least... Right. You yes, know, yes, yes. she's a, a depressive, unhappy lesbian, but at least she hasn't killed anybody. Right. And so <laughs> right. That, that Marcus Welby episode is, is a is a well, at least at least, you know, at a time when gay guest characters on dramas tended to be violent criminals. At least he's this nice family man. Yeah, exactly. You know, you I was going to say that I loved your book because it, w- it reminded me so much of the cellular closet, like the cellular closet for TV. So it's really 
And I definitely, I, I had the fortune to see Vito give one of the, the last lectures he gave uh, uh, the, year, the year that he died. About six months before he died, he gave a lecture in Westchester, PA, and I, I saw it and brought my cassette recorder, so I have an audio of it. And I basically lifted his lecture format. When I go to colleges and film festivals, I do exactly what he did. He would bring in clips. Of course, he was covering a wider era because it was cinema, so he would start with clips from silent Laurel and Hardy movies and things and, and Charlie Chaplin films. And he would then go up to the present. And so what I do is I start with television in the fifties or, well, now I actually start a little bit with early fifties radio to show that, that it's, you know, it didn't just come full blown out of nowhere on television. Mm -hmm. Early television was building on the the traditions of radio comedy and variety and and drama. Yeah. You talk about in the book about how, I think you say not around 1975, the networks um, promised gay activists that they would try to avoid stereotypes about gay people. And it was interesting to me because I'm a mental health counselor by trade. And that's around the same time that the American Psychiatric Association in 73 um, depathologized homosexuality. In their right. And then, the, and then the psychologists in 75. Yeah, APA right. in 75. So I was wondering, was there you know, how was there, did this impact what was happening in television or vice versa? Yeah, no, it, it was, there was real like cross pollination. So for example, in 73, 74, when they're starting to lobby the networks around, you know, the, the Marcus Welby pathology episode and the police woman, you know, gang of killer lesbians running a nursing home episode and that sort of thing. Um, one of the things that they were doing is they um, got uh, now, who, I think it was Judd Marmer. It was somebody from, from American Psychi- Psychiatric Association. I think it was Judd Marmer to write letters to the networks talking about the mental health impact of, oh. of these sorts of portrayals. And they got lots of other people to write not only to the networks, but to the sponsors about the importance of responsible portrayals. So there was this, this you know, seeing who are our allies and how can we, uh, how can we draft them for the effort somehow. Oh, that's so interesting. I'd, I'd never known that before. Oh, wow. Amazing. Well, we're going to be passing the baton back and forth today, so I'm passing it over to Morris. Oh, thank you, John. Um, uh, Stephen, I want to um, – I mean, uh, John actually mentioned a little piece of, uh, of some of the, um, the same chapter that I was so um, intrigued with because one of my specialties in this podcast has been history of the movement. Um, I have done several interviews now um, uh, that focused on different parts of that. But um, I do, I do, uh, it struck me about those very simple terms that were okay to use against gay, uh, gays and LGBTQ plus people. And um, it was that um, it took a while because other terms um, uh, that were derogatory for other minorities had, had been uh, already been wiped away or been, the whole universe was beginning to wipe away those, but it was still okay to say uh, ugly things, uh, you know, use ugly terms about us. And so that was one of the first steps I remember um, that you brought out in that chapter. Um, and it, it's important to me because um, as, as you know, all of us are writers here, um, every, every one of those words is, is fraught. Every one of those words, and, and even reclaiming our, our word queer uh, took some doing. Um, and and so that's why we um, we are actually put that in our the title of our podcast. So it's it's so important um, to me in a contemporary sense is that for a while there a few years ago, not too long ago, it was okay for preteens to to say that's so gay, um, in a, in a way that right. was not about sexuality. They were just using the term, and that was an insult. Um, and it had nothing to do with pointing out a person's sexuality. Again, it was like that gay, gay is a bad thing. And that was fairly recent. So um, these, this is not over. Uh, I want to jump ahead a little bit in time when, um, and you mentioned this again in your introduction, um, how uh, the society took, um, it, there was some progress. And then there was a big, big uh, pl- uh, lump in the throat of the world when AIDS uh, became out, uh, was was broke out in burgeoning AIDS years, like 80, 79, 80, 81. Um, and, and then in, over time, not too long, AIDS became synonymous with gay. And that was a huge issue. Yeah. Tell I had a coworker I, I, in the, in the, in the early nineties, I worked at a, a, a corporate grant making foundation, the, the grant making branch of a giant multinational company. And I and so what we talked about all day was social justice issues and what can we fund and what is the company willing to fund, 
And I had a coworker who, whenever AIDS issues would come up, she knew I volunteered. What I volunteered with was gay organizations. Uh, and she said, oh, I think Stephen volunteers with AIDS organizations. And, and so it's like it was so synonymous in her head that she couldn't, you know, grasp that 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 a gay organization wouldn't be an AIDS organization. Right. Um, it, it, people just couldn't separate that. And people were terrified. There was a guy in my dorm in college, straight guy, very nice guy. And he was assigned a gay roommate freshman year. And his parents forced him to change rooms because, you know, what if what if your roommate, you know, uses your towel and you get AIDS? What if your roommate can't restrain himself and rapes you and you get AIDS? People were just nuts. I mean, people were just were so understandably frightened because nobody knew how it was spread. Right. So uh, that I understand. But the the inability to separate gay from AIDS was was kind of astonishing. And what that did was it meant a few things. Uh, it meant that entertainment shows suddenly were no longer as willing to depict gay and bisexual men. Not that they were great on bisexual representation to begin with, but less so, right? Uh, the, the positive flip side of that is that they still wanted to show that their shows were trendy and daring, which meant that they were finally using lesbian and bisexual women as characters, which was, you know, progress. It took, it's it, astonishing to me that television, network television, in in the sense that we understand it, began in the U.S. in 1946. It went full time in 1948 to seven nights a week. So that's that's a long time ago, right? And it took 40 years from then to 1988, where you have the first lesbian regular character on a series. So the network, whereas you had, you know, identifiably or at least strongly coded gay characters. Uh, as regulars on series starting in 72 and then openly gay starting around 74, 75, or maybe 76. But, you know, something. So that one of the, the sort of things that came out of that, and I interviewed one of the head writers for, for Dynasty, the original 80s version of Dynasty. And I said, you know, I have a theory. And I said, can you confirm this? Because I had looked through, I was, I went through the archives of the Gay Media Task Force, which are up at Cornell. This was the organization in the 70s and 80s that the network used as their main consulting organization around uh, LGBT scripts. And so they had copies of early drafts of scripts and revised drafts. And for Dynasty, they had what they called the season Bibles. Before they sat down to write the scripts of each season, they would write this like novella of that season's plots. And every season, Stephen was supposed to have a boyfriend. And it seemed to me the pattern was in years when AIDS was very much in the news and the public was really panicky, they changed it at the last minute and he would be, you know, married to a woman, dating a woman, confused about his sexuality. And then when the public calmed down a little, he had a boyfriend again and his boyfriends kept getting murdered, you know, <laughs> with, with astonishing regularity. But, um, you know, whereas his, his two ex-wives just lived on and on and on. But uh, so I, I asked Ed de Blasio this and he said, yes, that's exactly what happened. He said every season, he said in our heads, he was a gay character, not a bisexual character. But the networks sort of wanted him to be bisexual so that in the seasons when it was uncomfortable to do gay male material, we could do something else. Hmm. You know, whereas in the new version of Dine and the, the big conflict in the original series was the, you know, the, the father who's an oil magnate, who's, you know, a right wing Republican and very homophobic and, and, you know, yet they love each other and can they reconcile their differences. And when they did the new version of Dynasty, which started, I don't know, four years ago or something, one of the things the writers decided up front is that conflict between the father and son just wouldn't make sense. Right, this father who's the head of an oil company, who's very worldly and educated, he would he would have you know known gay people, you know, unlike the original dad who would have grown up in the forties and fifties. Yeah, yeah, hmm. makes sense. Thank you, John. Yeah, um, one of the things that was a theme that you you hit on early in your book, and and you described it being something that took place um, through the decades. It really seems like even including the controversy with Ellen that I, I know we're going to talk about later, but the whole idea that good gays are the ones who are asexual on TV and the bad gays are oftentimes criminals who are very sexually promiscuous and um, maybe dressed in S&M gear and things like that. I just wondered if you could talk about that whole theme. 
Yeah, there was definitely the, the good gays, bad gays split, right? Uh, particularly in the 70s where the, you know, the coming out episode, the two, basically the two narratives are the, com- excuse me, there's the coming out episode where an old friend or relative of one of the main characters shows up for one episode, comes out right before the middle commercial. The main character doesn't deal well with it. By the end of the episode, they have reconciled their differences to greater or lesser degrees. And then you never see the gay character again. That's, that's <laughs> right. Never dominant again. narrative. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and that gay character doesn't seem to know any other gay people, uh, is, is perennially single, shows no signs of a libido. So that's one acceptable narrative. The other is the, you know, killer dykes running the nursing home or, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I have a whole whole chapter in the book about lesbian characters in the seventies and early eighties called killer dyke syndrome. I'm told that is the chapter that sold the book. Oh, interesting. Because it it gets into the lesbian feminist liberations, uh, you know, sit in at NBC and the protests on the street outside. And uh, but anyway, so that's the other narrative is, is the, the, the gay or bisexual criminal and bisexuality was allowable in criminals. Right. Hmm. That's the other thing. Whereas it, you until you get more three dimensional bi characters in any significant numbers, you're heading into like the 90s and early 2000s. Um, so that's the other narrative. And then the, the, the additional narrative is the story about homophobia, but without actual gay people. And this, Uh. these were usually stories about schoolyard homophobia where it would be set at a high school. So there's an episode of room 222 from the early seventies. There's an episode of the, the white shadow from the late seventies, early eighties, where you have the kid who everyone, again, guest character, you will never see again, the kid who everyone is convinced is gay and they torment him. And everybody talks about how horrible that prejudice is. And then at the end, it turns out either the kid is straight or he isn't sure of his sexuality and that makes it okay. Yeah. This this whole theme of gays being asexual or GLBTQ people being asexual, not having a libido, it really seems to carry you know all the way into the controversy in the '90s with um, you know Ellen and whether or not there's going to be a kiss on TV and you exactly. Know, that kind of stuff. Well, and the use of parental guidance warnings. Oh, if I was you look ask at about if that. you look yeah. at at ABC, so Ellen, we're talking about the her late '90s sitcom where she plays Ellen Morgan, the bookshop mm-hmm. owner. Yeah, and yeah. so once she comes out. And you have that last season where there are episodes with her her girlfriend Laurie, which are lovely. I, I think of the last season, if you just like left out all the non Laurie episodes, it actually would have been a decent season. It it kind mm-hmm. of turns into a lesbian version of Mad About You. It's a, a romantic <laughs> you say that comedy. In the book. That's so funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. But ABC was really inconsistent about what they would apply parental guidance warnings to and what the, the, you know, TV PG TV MA ratings were. So for example, you could do an episode of spin city where it's jokes about guys getting erections at inappropriate moments. And that doesn't get a warning. Hmm. You could have an episode of drew Carey where two straight guys make out, but it's like, as a joke, you're laughing at it. No parental guidance warning, but Ellen touches her girlfriend in any way. And, you know, parental guidance is suggested. You can hear the audience sucking their breath in, you know, (gasps) she's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, So it's marking us as other and, and it's things that if it were a straight couple doing that, no one would even think about giving it a guidance warning. No, not a blink. Yeah. Not a blink. Thank you. Um, this is so interesting. We, we're we're uh, about halfway through. I'm fascinated. Uh, yeah. I, I'm going to read a, my favorite citation, which leads into my next question. And uh, if you indulge me, it's – it's I forget where it falls in the book, but it it's, um, comes from, let's see, Daniel Lippman, who co-wrote An Early Frost. Uh, he was quoted in the mm-hmm. Omaha World in 1985. He says, this is not a gay movie. It is a family tragedy. Anyone in a family will want to see this. I think people are interested. It's like a terrible accident. People want to turn away, but cannot. I don't think they should turn away. Um, I love that citation because it really, really gets to the heart of the humanity of what's going on with all this. Um, and and um, my my question is uh, coming up is about because of the mechanics of the book, this book was first released a while back, and then this is a new release in paperback. Um, and the, the, the time span starts 
um, way in the beginning in the 1970s. You, you go back earlier, of course, references and radio and things. But um, and then it it ends at 2000, right around 2000. Um, and mm-hmm. when the book was first published, um, and the new paperback has the paperback has has some, some updates and some fact checks and some 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 tweaks here and there, but it's largely the same time period. But there's a lot has happened since 2000. Um, which sure. is not in the book. And I'd love to know from your perch, because you have a very unique perch now having done this, uh, where do you think things are and where are they going to be going? Well, I think one of the main things, and it's funny that I, I, I ended the book with this. I said, you know, I think the internet's going to get faster and you'll be able to stream video someday. And then you'll be able to do really niche market programming. You won't need like, you know, 30 million viewers to, to get a second season. And that's basically what's happened with the streaming platforms. And that's great because you, you now have the possibility to do shows that don't have to appeal to, you know, everybody everywhere. So that allows things that that are more casually inclusive, which is great. Also on the streaming platforms, you don't have sponsors to worry about, which is also wonderful. And most importantly, I think the biggest change, both in terms of broadcast television and streaming and cable, is who's in the writer's room, right? Because if you think about, for example, a show like Sensate, where you have the co-creators are both trans women. You have trans writers in the writing room along with a bunch of other people in the writing room. And think about how different the trans major character on that series is than pretty much every trans regular character we had seen before. Because it's not some straight cisgender person's fantasy of what a trans person is. It's not the trans person as complication in some other person's life. Right? She's the star of her own life, and she has her own story. And we hadn't seen that a lot. Where we had seen it before uh, was not on American television. It was on British television. And, and if you think about the original Tales of the City miniseries from the early 90s, which was a novel by an American written in the 70s that had been at one point or another in development at every movie studio and every TV network as a potential movie or series. And Armistead Maupin would go into the story meetings and say, you know, uh, will in your version of this story, will Michael and John be allowed to kiss? And most of them wanted to reduce Michael, this major romantic gay figure in the book to the wacky neighbor down the hall, if they wanted him at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it went to channel four in England and, Armistead Maupin asked them that question, and they said, no, you don't understand. We've, our money depends on us faithfully adapting your book. If we do not do that, we will lose our funding. And so that's why you have the casual inclusiveness of bi characters, trans characters, gay characters who have love lives. And they are shot the same way that the straight romances are shot. It's just, you know, here are some people and here are their stories. American television took a long time to get there. And we're kind of there now, which is wonderful. Um, And there were shows that paved the way for that. You know, that um, Queer as Folk on Showtime in the early to mid 2000s, which was based on a British series. uh, And the British series aired on the same network that had done Tales of the City. Channel 4 is very cool in some ways. And um, and then The L Word, which Eileen Chaikin had pitched to Showtime before Queer as Folk, but they approved it after Queer as Folk once they saw, oh, you can make money with, with something like this. <laughs> and, <course>. and then, <laughs> right. And then you got, you started to see things on non-premium channels. Uh, one of the shows I think is remarkable is Pose. And again, because there is at least one trans woman of color in the writing room, which makes it just feel more solid. People are able to write from what they've experienced, what people they know have experienced, and that just feels more true. Wonderful. It I was thinking so. about... Uh, oh, sorry. I uh, just want to follow up. It's, I'm hearing optimism. Um, if you want to pull, put one word to what's coming, um, uh, there's a lot of optimism in your tone. And um, I agree with you. I agree with you. Again, from a child who was just grateful to see anybody, no matter how sinister that character was, um, realizing that it was a scary time. Um, now to where it's just like, oh, okay, it's just another character. He's just a character. Um, and they all, they're all equal. And the, the other so, uh, and, and the remarkable thing is now with, with the streaming platforms, 
we also get to see queer inclusive shows from other countries. Mm, that's some, right. right yeah. Some of which are doing it in ways that American TV just isn't at yet. Uh, I was no. watching, there's a show from Spain called Elite set at a prep school. And there's this, you know, male same sex couple and they are presented in a fairly casual, naturalistic way that I don't think I recall seeing a same-sex teen couple presented in the U.S. I mean, on Riverdale, you have the, the female couple. I'm a couple years behind. I don't know if they're still together. But that's presented in a kind of voyeuristic, slightly tacky way, you know? I mean, it's yeah. great. But I, it, it kind of feels like it crosses the line into soft porn for the straight male viewers. Mm. Yeah. Um, I know John's interested in some of that history, some of the steps that got us here. So, John, take it away. Well, I was thinking about um, – this is going way back to the 70s when you were talking about having the um, transgender writers in the room for one of these shows you were talking about. And you know, going through your book um, – is like for me, it was like reliving my childhood in so many ways and my own coming out experiences. Because I, there was that there are several episodes with Archie, Archie Bunker and the Jeffersons where they had these transgender characters. I think in the Archie Bunker episode, it was a um, someone who was a transvestite. But they introduced these characters, and it was fascinating because Archie Bunker and then George Jefferson were these gruff men who are finding out that these these characters are transgender and. It's fascinating that took place in the 70s. I just wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, Norman Lear, who was, was one of the producers of both of those shows, could get away with a lot. Uh, uh. He had uh, All in the Family was his first big hit. And that was a show that redefined what a sitcom could be in America. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about what sitcoms were before 1971, when All in the Family went on the air, it was, you know, Bewitched, My Favorite Martian, Uh, The Brady Bunch, Father Knows Best. No, what somebody once called, I think, shows about happy white people with happy white problems. Whitewashed shows, Uh yeah. And Norman Lear said, you know, there was no hint that this was a country that had racism, alcoholism, any any problems, you know, anything more serious than who will kitten go to the the prom with, right? (laughs) That's funny. So uh, he then adapted this British series, which had been called Till Death Us Do Part, about this, in the original, really more harsh, hard-drinking, working-class, bigoted, racist, uh, you know, verbally abusive to his wife character, Alf Garnett, which got softened and made a little more three-dimensional for Archie Bunker in the American version. And it was about this family, how the social changes of the 70s, the women's movement, the black civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the gay rights, all those movements and changes in society were playing out in the lives of one family. Mm-hmm. And you have the dad who's really just, you know, the world he grew up in where, where he, even though by many lights, he's, he's kind of seen as a nobody, right? He's, mm-hmm. he's, he, he has maybe a high school education. He works at a loading dock. Uh, he looked, he's looked down on by a lot of people, but he's a white man and he, you know, grew up knowing that that made him better than a lot of people. And now that's changing and that scares him and he lashes out. And you have the wife who is sort of the, the heart of the show. You have the, the, the sort of hippie liberal son-in-law and the, the daughter who's caught in the middle between the, her husband and her father. It's, I mean, it's the perfect format to, to deal with all those issues. And because All in the Family got huge numbers and, and made a lot of money for the network from advertising, they allowed him in shows like The Jeffersons and uh, Sanford and Son and, and other series to, to deal with social issues in ways that the networks generally did not let sitcoms do at that time. Uh. Well, I, I, I remember that episode with um, the character, you know, sitting there in a chair, in Edith's chair, talking to Archie Bunker in his famous chair. And, oh, yeah. you know, the, the, <laughs> oh, the, with the wig, know, the wig. Yes. Yeah. It's just yeah. it was a classic, a classic scene. Yeah. Her yeah, name do was you, Beverly. Do you prefer, do, yeah. Yes, that's right. Good memory. Beverly LaSalle yeah. played, played by Laurie Shannon, who was one of the, the drag stars of, of Finocchio's in San Francisco. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, wow. and, um, and it's a remarkable character also because Beverly shows up in three episodes. It's not just like the once and gone thing. Uh. And 
it's interesting to me how the character sort of in the first episode, Beverly seems to be a gay male drag performer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, there's the, the Archie says, you know, miss, or do you girls prefer Ms? And Beverly takes off the wig and says, why don't you call me Mr? Right. So yeah. the character is clearly in the first episode anyway, is male identified, but by the last episode, you're not quite sure the, 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 the signals are really kind of vague. And I think the writers weren't quite sure what they wanted the character to be. Yeah. That last episode was very yeah. sad. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. I still remember that. Yeah. And yeah. you know, it's, it's funny cause people look at that through the lens of today, people who go back and look at that 19, whatever, 70 Christmas, 77 episode uh, where Beverly's killed by, by queer bashers on the street Mm -hmm. who I think read him and Mike as a couple. um, That's right. As a male couple. And Mike survives the attack and Beverly doesn't. Um, And they say, Oh, it's another kill your queers episode. And it's like, no, 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 no. You have to look at what was happening in that era the gay rights movement was was urging the media to acknowledge the long history of anti-lgb at that point the movement wasn't dealing with trans yet so anti-lgb violence and saying you know, what about if you were to take this beloved character who we've seen several times and who the audience has been made to love and have it happen to that person yeah that's right yeah and, yeah. and then have have it endorsed basically emotionally by edith um, because it was Edith's right. reaction to all this that was the most touching, the most powerful. So I, I think America could identify through her that there's you know, it, yeah. part of this. She was the, really the window into. She was the window into a lot of the the issues they talked about. Yeah, yeah. The, also, the episode where where you know they go to her cousin Liz's funeral and they find out that. Uh, yeah. Liz's roommate has been her partner for 25 years. That's right. You have yeah. a picture of the book, don't you, for that episode? And and yeah. that's the the that's like six years into the series. I think that's the first time you see Edith defy Archie, you know, because he says, you know, we're taking the tea set. You know, you're her next of kin, and Edith says no. That that uh, I forget her name, the K. Callan character. That's really her next of kin. And Archie says, you mean you're going to defy your husband? And Edith looks surprised and says, yeah. <laughs> those are the most power. Those are some of the most powerful times in the show when Edith would come across so strong like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the audience would be behind Edith a lot of times. Yeah. Take it, Morris. Oh, yeah. Well, um, I, 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 I've had um, <laughs> so much fun listening. I'm, I've lost myself. Um, I, my, my last question um, <laughs> yeah. is, well, last question is, um, where are you going from here? Where, where, where's your heart taking you? You, you said you started out working in the archives and, and this, this has made a wonderful book um, and now a follow up book. Um, what's happening next with you? Well, you know, I, I have been trying for about 10 years to figure out how to structure a follow-up book to this. And writing about 20th century TV was much easier, right? When there were four commercial networks and PBS and two ga- cable channels that were that mattered, that were producing original programming, and everybody watched things more or less the week they aired. So that's, that's very linear, right? Whereas now right. I'll see ads saying, you know, season seven of this show is premiering and I've never heard of the show. Mm-hmm. You know, how right. that would not have happened 20 years ago, right? Because there's just so much. Material. So figuring out a structure for it has been very hard. And what I finally am kind of coming to is that I can't do something as broad as this about the 21st century. It either needs to be something very narrow, uh, looking at, I don't know, portrayals of LGBT youth, because that's a really good litmus test of tolerance, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. or... Uh, looking at, I'm kind of fascinated by the process of the merger between the the LGB movement and the trans movement, and and the you know the the people on both sides who favored it, the people on both sides who were uncomfortable about it, and how the process started and where it began, and uh, and I thought that that might be a book, but it's also a minefield because no matter what you write, you're going to piss someone off. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, great. Uh, thank you, um, John. That that that's all I had. Well, you know, we've we've talked about we've talked a little bit about Ellen and Tales of the City and Archie Bunker and the Jeffersons, and there there are so many different shows that I that I just could ask you about. But of course, I had to, I have to ask you about the Golden Girls because so many gay men like myself um, mm-hmm. have these these episodes that that they seem to just continue through history, and we still laugh about today and. 
my favorite, of course, is when Blanche um, makes this comment about Rose's friend who is a lesbian and Rose uh, Blanche <laughs> says something like, well, isn't Danny Thomas a lesbian? <laughs> and it's just this classic line. Like, yeah. People still laugh about. Yeah. Not Lebanese Blanche. Le- yeah, I, the, yeah. first t- the first time I gave my talk, which was about a year after I saw Vito give his talk, um, <laughs> I was it was at this big intercollegiate LGB student leadership conference in Boston. And there was a large contingent from Gallaudet in Washington. So there were sign interpreters. Yeah. And this poor sign interpreter who had to cold interpret my lecture with like Monty Python clips <laughs> and all uh-huh. these things that are just like, imp- I mean, I, I work as a translator. I trans one of the things I translate is theater. So I'm used to translating uh. humor. And, you know, usually you have about an hour to think about a joke and, and she just had to go. And when they got to that line, you know, uh, I've never known any personally, but in Danny Thomas one, and there's that pause, <laughs> not Lebanese Blanche lesbian, oh. is this look of horror crossed her face. And she, I think, <laughs> fingerspelled, you know, she said, not Lebanese, not, not Lebanese, <laughs> fingerspelled Lebanese, and she said, lesbian. And then she sort of like changed her affect and went into her, you know, voice in signing and turned to where the gal that <laughs> students were. And she said, it's a hearing person joke. <laughs> oh, that's wow. funny. That's a great story, too. Oh. Well, the other class, the other classic one, you know, that um, people talk about is when Bre- um, Blanche's brother is gay and she's and finally accepting Southern, this. Yes, yeah, Southern characters. Yeah, I wanted to get the Southern characters in for our podcast, you know, Ellen from the South and Blanche Devereaux. So her brother comes, visits her from the South, and she's finally comes to accept that he's gay. Um, and then he shows up again and with his boyfriend and says, we're getting right, married. Right. Yeah. But the one I the one that I was thinking of in this case is where they she goes into this bar and assumes that they're in a gay bar and turns to the bar right. of all these men and says, any of you would I'd love for you to be with my brother. Yeah. <laughs> I also love there, there's a line that, that often gets cut in the syndicated repeats because it's very uh, politically incorrect. But it cracks me up every time, which is where. Uh, he's so they're all the, the 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 golden girls are all in the living room and and uh, uh, Clayton is there with Doug and Clayton, he says yeah. and he says you know uh, Blanche I, I've got something to tell you and he puts his hands on her shoulders and he says we're getting married and Rose says well that's silly Clayton brothers can't marry sisters and then there's a beat and she goes oh that's right you're from the south. that usually gets cut in the reruns oh you have that listed in your book too i remember seeing that in there and and then the other really remarkable we talk about southern southern things is is one of the first casual pieces of trans inclusiveness i ever saw like really casual like just there was when the lady chablis turned up on this old house really lady chablis did oh my gosh they were they were renovating a house in savannah and, you know, they always do a little thing about the town. And they said, and we're, we're now going to introduce you to one of the, the great ladies of Savannah. And it was the Lady Chablis. And it's never commented on. She talks about what it's like to, have, to live in Savannah and all that. And I thought, wow. It's like, it was sort of like if you, if you read Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, or I, I think the movie, you know, the movie wasn't out yet. So uh, if you saw Midnight in the Garden of Red, had read the book, you knew who that was. But otherwise, people Could you tell just... our listeners who that is in case they have, haven't heard? Yeah, just in case they haven't, that doesn't, they don't know so, who Lady Chablis was? Yeah, Lady Chablis was a, um, one, of the, one of the trans women at that time. Who, a lot of trans women at that time were, were doing drag performing uh, and used the term drag performer. And so that's, uh, she was a cabaret artist in Savannah, a, a black trans woman. Uh, who I think in her day-to-day life used the name Brenda, I think, was that it? I can't remember. I don't remember. And, yeah. uh, and uh, anyway, she was this very memorable figure. And in the movie of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, she plays herself. So you get to actually see her playing herself. And, uh, and I thought, wow. You know, because, I mean, this old house, you don't usually get celebrity no. guests. No. <laughs> Much no. less well, queer celebrity guests. Yeah. That's really and, funny. And, but it, but what's what's groundbreaking is that it was it was treated so casually that this is just a regular ordinary thing. You of course you'd bring her on. Um she's a Savannah uh, icon, right? So um so, right. so that is that is progress. Uh, that's great progress. Um, and unfortunately, we- you know, I, when I was when I was writing the book, I tended to record everything I watched just in case there was a surprise like that. And that day, I did not have the VCR running, so I don't have that clip. Oh, 
I would um, love to use it in We're lectures. running low on time, but I want to ask you one more thing. Um, okay. And that is, what was, because this is such a fun book, and there's you could tell as, as we were reading it, like, oh my God, um, just your discovery must have been a delight. I know there's a lot, a lot of hard work in there, but you must have had a lot of aha moments um, and, and things that delighted oh, you and question. surprised you. Yeah. So uh, tell us about some Mostly of those fun th- finding times. things, finding things from the fifties really was the hard part. When I, when I started the research, I would go to the, I, I was working a block from the free library of Philadelphia. So I would go there on my lunch break and, and sit in the theater or the performing arts archives there or the, the microfilm room. And the librarians all said, Oh, you're not going to find anything before, you know, maybe 1970. And exactly. so as I was finding these older things, I was So my favorite grit, you know, uh, random find, is I was watching, I think it was Nick at Night, and they were rerunning a show that it, it was a, a 1950s sitcom starring Ann Southern that was originally called Private Secretary in reruns. It's called Susie. And there's an episode with Franklin Pangborn, who you would recognize even if you don't know who he is. He was this cat, prissy character actor who was in a lot of 1930s and 40s films who always played the gay-coded character. And in this, he plays... People say, well, you know, if, if the broadcast code didn't allow gay characters, how did they, what, what, what would, how would you know that a coded character was supposed to be gay? So he, here's him. He's this, this prissy guy with a, you know, flower in his boutonniere and white gloves and a walking stick. And he's a male secretary. So he's a man in what was thought of as a woman's profession. And then at one point he says that his big dream in life had been to be an interior decorator, mm. but he bruises so easily. And when you have to hang drapes, you've got to climb ladders. (laughs) So if you just stack and and that was one of those things where I happened, I was like, all right, I'm just anything I'm watching, I'm recording. And I got it. And that episode is not on any of the DVD sets for that series. So I have this clip that I use when when I lecture and it's just Uh, funny and lovely. Yeah. Wow. John, you have anything? I'll just, yeah, I'll just close by saying, um, Stephen, just how much we appreciate you being here. This, this book, um, as you can tell from how Morris and I have been laughing so much and how enthusiastic we've been about asking questions, it, it really is like going through your childhood and, and then learning so much about TV and radio before you were even born. It was just, um, just a wonderful book. Yeah, it was. Well, I agree. I second that. And, and it didn't just happen organically. Yeah. That's what really that you drive that point home. There was a lot of work that went on to make this where it is to put this where we are today even though there was those blips in the 80s where things were not not so right but we've we've moved along quite quite a bit so thank you for putting it all down for us no problem and just to let people know so the paperback is available through well obviously amazon and and any other bookseller can order it through ingram and then the ebook is on just about every major ebook platform great Great. alternate channels in addition, I'll say to our listeners that when this, when you're looking at this podcast and looking at, at the description of the podcast, there'll be a um, a place you can click on the description where you can also go to um, go to purchase the book to take you to one of these sites. So lovely. And yes. I do have, I also do have a, a Twitter presence. This month I have been a little lax about it, but I do occasionally post. Uh, if you go to at uh, Stephen Capsudo, that's Stephen with a V, and uh, I post often today in queer TV history with little video clips. Nice. And I can nice. attest that I, I follow, I follow Steven's Twitter feed and I really enjoy it. I, I it's just fun to see what's coming up next. So, um, well now I will be too, well, cause I'm intrigued. Thanks again. Yes. You, yes you'll enjoy you, it more. So you won't, you won't, you won't be, you won't credit. So to our listeners, um, like we said, go out and get this book. It's a, it's a wonderful book and you'll appreciate having it in your collection and join us again next time for queer voices of the South on the new books network.